Uh, Phil, we have been preaching through uh, attributes of God, and rather than God uh, go somewhere that only God would know where that might be, uh, Phil asked me to uh, continue our sermon series on the attributes of God. And this morning, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to continue with the attribute of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Phil has been preaching this series from the book of Romans, uh, but we are going to move away from Romans today. We're going to turn back to the Old Testament. We're going to turn to the book of Psalms, specifically to Psalm 29. So if you would please turn there in your Bibles, and uh, we'll get there in just a minute. That way you will be ready. Last week, we Phil preached and we considered the attribute of God's wisdom. God's wisdom. And our text was Romans 11, 33 and 34, where we read, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Well, verses 35 and 36 pick up on that and they go on and it refers to God's sovereignty. And it says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And Paul tells us how we should respond to an all-wise and sovereign God. To him be glory forever. Amen. The sovereignty, if we're going to define the sovereignty of God, and we are, we would define it as his preeminent or his unsurpassed power and authority over all things in both the heavens and on earth. Now, as we study through the attributes of God, whenever you do, and we do often here, because this is, the attributes of God are God's self-revelation to you and I as to who he is. Absent that, in our finite minds, we would have no idea how to comprehend God. And indeed, even in his attributes, we don't fully, right now, be able to do that. But God has put these things forward to us to say, this is who I am. This is who I am as God. This is who I am as to, as to you as God. And as we walk through all of these, know that all of the attributes of God work completely together in harmony with one another. In other words, he is, it is not one today and another the next. He is not love today and a judge tomorrow. He is, his attributes work together all the time in perfect harmony. So we're going to put that together for just a minute because God's sovereignty then is the natural outpouring of his attributes, of his omniscience. He knows all. His omnipresence, he is everywhere at all times, and his omnipotence, and the fact that he is all-powerful. We put those three things together, and we find God's sovereignty over all things in the heavens and the earth. The fact that God's sovereign, and that he is in himself wisdom, as we saw last week, should come to us very closely because it assures us that the Lord that we worship has a plan and a purpose for all things. A plan and a purpose for the spiritual realm, for the earthly realm, and therefore in your life. And it assures us that this plan and purpose will be accomplished. We read in Job 42, 2, no purpose of his can be thwarted. That's a great word, thwarted. When's the last time you used the word thwarted? Look it up. Well, regardless of the version of the Bible you may be using this morning, and I'll be using the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, the terms sovereign and sovereignty are used really only a handful of times, and yet uh, God is evident throughout Scripture, and it is a major premise of the doctrine of God, his sovereignty over all things. From his plan and execution of creation in Genesis to the final establishment of the eternal kingdom of God in Revelation, as we just read in Romans 11.36, all of these are from him and through him and to him. The sovereignty of God is this great big theological concept, to be sure. Some of the attributes of God we can sort of understand, at least in a finite way. Sovereignty of God, we can understand what it means, but it is, but it is very deep in its, 
in its totality and what it really means. So to the point, it's difficult sometimes to get to wrap our minds around it. And, and that's not a bad thing. If we, with our finite minds, could fully understand God or fully explain God, he wouldn't be God, would he? Certainly his ways wouldn't be wise, they wouldn't be deep and unsearchable and inscrutable if we could do that. So thank you, Lord, for that. That said, because it can be, in fact it is, I think, I know it is in my life, a difficult thing to fully understand, although we believe it to be true, we can have the tendency to just pass it off as, as some concept and leave it to the pastors and theologians through the rest. And I would, uh, friends, we must not allow this glorious attribute of God to be only that. We must apply this truth not only to our minds but to our hearts. One writer put it, if we do the former without the latter, in other words, if we accept God's sovereignty in our minds but we don't embrace it in our hearts, we might know that sovereignty is sweet but will never taste its sweetness. And it is sweet when we embrace the fact that, yes, God sovereignly created the universe and all things, his sovereignty may best be evidenced by his loving concern and his providential care over our lives every day. The fact that he is our sovereign Lord, Savior, and good shepherd. Ephesians 1, if you know Jesus Christ as you sit here this morning or you're listening, Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose you before the foundation of the world. And Psalm 139 tells you that God knows when you rise up and when you sit down. He knows your every word before you speak it. He knows your every thought before you think it. He knew you before you were born. He knit you in your mother's womb. And he ordained every one of your days before there were any of them. Jeremiah 29.11 tells us, From God himself, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And John 10.28 promises that having eternal life in Jesus Christ, you will never perish, that no one can snatch you out of his hand. So in putting all of these things together, Romans 8.28 promises that in the, in the power of his sovereignty, born out of his steadfast love for you, on the calmest of days or in the deepest and darkest days of the storms of your life, all are in God's sovereign control. Therefore, all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So friends, without God's sovereignty, his personal sovereignty toward you, you would have no such promise and you would have no such hope. I don't know if that was an introduction or a conclusion, maybe both, but that is what Psalm 29 was asking you to consider this morning as we walk through that. I was hoping that we might have some type of storm today. Originally, we were supposed to get a little rain anyway, not just because we're in a drought, but because it would be most fitting when we turn to the text. In in, uh, Psalm 29, uh, Charles Spurgeon maintained that certain psalms should be read on certain and special occasions. The eighth psalm speaks of the moon and the stars and should be read by moonlight. The 19th psalm speaks of the power of the sun and should be read maybe at sunrise. And the 29th psalm, which speaks of the storm, according to Spurgeon, can be best rehearsed beneath the black wing of tempest by the glare of the lightning or amid that dubious dusk which, which heralds the war of elements. So, imagine a really stormy day and join with me now in reading our text, which is Psalm 29. This is the word of our Lord, and it is a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. 
The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for what you are about to teach us this morning about who you are. We pray, dear Lord, that, that you will bless that time, that you would illuminate our time together. You illuminate the scripture, that you will make it real to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the truth of your word. Otherwise, we would not know who you are, and we would not know who we are, and therefore would not need our need of stout, not know of our need for a Savior. So we give our time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If you do, we're going to do this exegetically, one verse after another. Because we just read this, and I'm, this is a familiar psalm, I'm sure, to most of you. There's a great deal of symbolism here. And within that symbolism is the message God wants you to hear this morning. So we're going to walk through each one of these, and we're going to cover those things. So please, just keep that open. I think it'll behoove you. And uh, just allow us to see what the Lord has for us. The uh, 2021 Atlantic hurricane season was the third most active hurricane season on record. It produced 21 named storms, caused more than $80 billion in damage at the cost of 193 lives. We have the opposite problem here in the West, don't we? In recent years, we have endured firestorms. The Tubbs Fire that destroyed parts of Napa, Solano, and Lake Counties in 2017. The Camp Fire in 2020 that left the town of Paradise and Ash Heap. Of course, last year's Caldor Fire that affected us directly, that burned more than 221,000 acres, literally in our own backyard, and destroying two-thirds of the town of Grizzly Flats. It cost more than $269 million to fight, not including property damage. And as we speak, there are seven wildfires burning out of control right now in New Mexico. These statistics and our own experience tell us that these storms and other so-called natural disasters around the world are on the rise. At least I believe they are in number, in size, and intensity. And although that is not our, this is not our subject this morning, I believe that we can expect them to continue to increase as the return of our sovereign Lord draws ever nearer. So we need to be prepared. There are a few things that provoke more fear and anxiety than the, real, than the raw power and strength of a storm that, when unleashed, has the potential to bring with it mass destruction and devastating loss of both property and life. And with that storm comes the frightening and humbling reality that in our human frailty, we, are absolute, we have absolutely no control over it. We are powerless to stop it, and we are at its mercy. There are times when there is simply no way to outrun the storm, to, to stay above the flood, to escape the intensity of the earthquake, or to quench the parched ground during drought. We euphemistically call these natural disasters the force of nature as if the storm proceeds under its own power. But Psalm 29 paints a very different picture of that to us. The seeming impersonal and random force of the storm is replaced by the power, the plan, the purpose of a very personal God who sovereignly controls all of these things, including the storm. Romans 1.20 reminds us that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. We saw that this is a psalm of David who, as the Apostle Paul did centuries later, found the glory of God in all aspects of the created universe, including the storm. 
In Psalm 19, David saw God revealing himself silently. In the orderly cyclical rotation of the world, God's voice, as it were, quietly going out through all the earth and to the end of the earth. And here in Psalm 29, he has, which has been called the Ode to Thunder, by the way, even as God speaks silently through the ordered universe, the voice of God now shouts. It is a commanding voice, and it is through the rumbling of the thunderstorm. As I said, it was known, it's been known as the Ode to Thunder, but that's really a misnomer. In, the 11, in these 11 verses, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, is used 18 times. Psalm 29 is not about the storm. It is about the glory and the majesty that is on display as God reveals his sovereign power through the awesomeness of his creation, even using the forces of nature as an instrument of his righteous judgment. And however, even as we look to that, even as it speaks to the storm, this psalm also speaks to God's tender grace, his mercy, and his preservation of his people. It is a call to God's elect to give God the glory, who grants peace in the midst of life's storms, and it is a not-so-subtle warning to those who do not. So as I mentioned, if you would keep your Bibles open this morning, we will look to see this, and we're going to look at four aspects of the sovereignty of God from Psalm 21, 29. Excuse me. Number one is God's sovereignty over the heavens. That's verses 1 and 2. God's sovereignty over the earth, that's verses 3 through 9. God's sovereignty over humanity, which is verse 10. And God's sovereign care for his people in verse 11. So first, God is sovereign over the heavens. David opens this psalm as a call to worship, worship much as we do every Sunday morning. But this call, this call is not to the congregation. This call is to the heavenly beings, as the ESV calls them. Uh, your version may read something like sons of the mighty ones or the, just the mighty ones. But the Hebrew literally means sons of God. And here and elsewhere in Scripture, it will refer to heavenly or angelic beings. In other Psalms, God has, or David, excuse me, has called on the families of earth to give glory to God. That's us. But here he is calling on the angelic host, and he calls them to ascribe to God what is due him. There's a scribe. There's another a scribe. When's the last time you used that word in your vocabulary? To ascribe is to acknowledge or testify to someone or something, and here it is to testify to and to declare what rightfully belongs to God, what is rightfully due him from us, to acknowledge his superiority all, over all things, and to acknowledge his holiness. Now David calls on the angels to praise God, to ascribe these things to God, not once but three times, twice in verse 1 and once in verse 2. And you know well that to have something repeated in Scripture two and particularly three times is to give it a very special emphasis that is to demand our attention. And that is what he is, David is doing here, and he also uses a literary advice, and it's found throughout the Psalms and throughout the Proverbs. It's called climactic step parallelism. And no, this isn't a seminary class, but as you read through this, you're going to want to see this. I hope you will look for it. Climactic parallelism is what happens when, and it's a poetic thing, when one takes a word, a line, or a phrase and repeats it in the next line or phrase, but uses different descriptive words to build on the thought and to bring it to a climax. It is to um, encourage us in, in what is being said. And here the main theme in Psalm 29 is to give God his due, to give God all the glory. And the Hebrew word for glory here is kabod, re referring to his splendor, the supremacy and sovereignty of a king. And that glory belongs to God and to God alone who is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. So look for that as we turn to verse 1. And David first calls on them to ascribe God's glory, which we looked at, and then glory and strength. Glory and strength. Strength refers to God's unhindered ability to bring about his purposes, that nothing 
can stop the determined will of the Lord. God himself said in Isaiah 45, I am God, there is no other. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Then building on this idea of of, uh, God's glory and then his strength, David climaxes the angelic call to ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. To ascribe glory to his name is to affirm and testify to all that God is, all his divine attributes that we have been studying, all the things that he does, all for us, uh, his power, his authority, his sovereignty, all these things speak to God's glory and give him glory alone. Moses put it this way in, in Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the, norm of, uh, the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Well, Shakespeare and Romeo, Romeo and Juliet asked the question, what is in a name? And for God, it is everything. It is everything. It is what Pastor Phil called a couple weeks ago the motivating reality of all he does. Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name of God to his people, set aside by Yahweh himself to be remembered forever, and that name that we are commanded to proclaim to the nations. What is in a name? Yahweh, the God who is. El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Jehovah Goel, the Lord my Redeemer. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Mephalti, the Lord my Deliverer. Jehovah Raha, the Lord my Shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Midkadeshkin, the Lord who sanctifies you. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Abba, Father. And that's the name only a few. And in Philippians 2.9, that name comes to us as the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is what? He is Lord. Why? To the glory of the Father. So what is in a name? Nothing short of God's sovereignty and our salvation, all to the praise of his glory. At the end of verse 2, as the angels are then called on to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. If you have the New American Standard, it will read, Holy Array. To worship, I know you know this, but it means to bow down, The importance of it in terms of what we're talking about today is to submit every aspect of our being, including our will, especially our will, entirely to God and His will. To worship in the splendor of holiness or an array most likely refers to the garments that were worn in the temple by the Aaronic priesthoods, as God commanded them to do. In Exodus 28, you may remember, these were holy garments. They were designed by God himself, and they were were to be set aside and worn only during formal worship of of Yahweh. But again, that's not about the garments. It's about what they represent. To worship in the splendor of holiness is not about how we come to worship, although that is of vital importance to be sure, but it is why we come to worship. As I studied through this this week, I really struggled with this. And there are different, I don't have opinions, but there's a lot written on the subject. But I think it may be as simple as this. We worship God because he alone is holy. He alone is pure. He alone is perfect. And he alone is beautiful. Now in our, in the world we live in, We can understand this concept to some degree, but our life is filled with sin and ugliness, sometimes in our own lives, sometimes always in the world around us and what we see happening 
all is a result of sin. But there is something in our hearts and minds, particularly of children of God, that know that that purity, that holiness of God exists. And it calls our attention to it when we meditate on it. It tells us that he is holy, he is perfect, and our hearts should long to be there. Should long to be there. His holiness is, terrifies the ungodly. As it points out all the ugliness and the filth of their sin. In fact, in Exodus 33, we're told that no man can see God and live, and no man can see God and live because of their sin. Not without the intervention of God Himself. It's the same time, it's the holiness, it's His purity that we should long for, that our hearts somehow understand in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, that causes the faithful to bow down in and praise Him in the knowledge that in Jesus Christ, He has granted us that holiness. We don't experience it that way yet. But on the cross, in that great exchange through propitiation, Jesus took our sin on the cross, and he forgives us. And in reverse, he takes his holiness and gives it to us. It is that holiness that allow us to one day sit in God's presence. That is why we, we worship God in his holiness. It's a promise that one day we too will put on heavenly, holy garments, and we will worship him in his sanctuary forever. My friend, I hope your heart longs for that purity, and we can worship him because he is and because we will be. We worship him because he is holy, holiness that compels us to bow before the name of Adonai, Adonai Ahelohim HaKadosh, the holy God. The question remains, besides the poetic value, why would, God, or would David presuppose to call on the angelic hopes to ascribe glory to God and worship him? There may be a couple answers to that question, but most likely, David begins with the angels, knowing that all things on earth ultimately begin in the heavenlies, in the heart, in the mind, and the purpose of God. And that praise and the trumpeting of angels often precede the greatest works of God. We see that through Scripture, don't we? At the first coming of Christ, it was the angel Gabriel who appeared to Mary to announce the coming birth of Jesus. It was the angelic host who at the same time appeared to the shepherds, saying glory to God on the highest and on earth peace among those to whom he is pleased. And it will be the sound of the trumpet and the voice of an archangel that will call all the saints, and call you and me. Burst the dead in Christ to meet Jesus in the clouds at the rapture. And preceding the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation, it will be the angels who announce the coming judgments. And here in Psalm 29, it is the angels who are to ascribe, first ascribe glory to God for the coming storm. Now in verse 3, we move to the heart of the message. The scene has shifted from the heavenly realm down to the earthly realm. Now in these seven verses, David describes for us the building and unfolding of the storm. But this is no ordinary storm. It is particularly powerful, and it promises great devastation. It begins far out in the Mediterranean Sea, gathers momentum and intensity. It will move across the land of Lebanon at the northernmost border of Israel. It will sweep south over the Galilee toward Jerusalem, ultimately passing all the way to the southernmost border of the country. David not only finds the power of God in the storm, he views the storm as a theophany. It is an appearance of God himself as the storm. Of course, we've seen that before elsewhere in the Old Testament. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, to Israel in the, in the cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night. He appeared to Abraham, Gideon, and others in human form. And here, God appears as an overwhelming and an unprecedented storm. And that tells us, as we look at this text, that this storm is unmistakably ordained by the power of the Lord. This is his storm. It is a self-revelation of his strength, his power, his grandeur, through the forces of nature and by implication over all circumstances on earth. And it makes clear 
that not only is Yahweh sovereign over all the heavens, he is sovereign over the earth, where his sovereignty is over nature is heard now in Psalm 29 as the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is used seven times here in verses 3 through 9, and um, it always refers to the strength and the destructive force of the storm that is coming. Seven is the number of God, and it signifies completion. It signifies perfection. And it focuses our attention, on, for all of us who hear that voice, not on the storm, but on the unmatched power and strength of God. First in verses 3 and 4, again building on itself, we hear the voice of the Lord over the waters and then over mighty waters. The mighty waters are the great sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It's where all the storms come from in the Middle East, and it's a symbol of strength in that region. The storm is growing in intensity, it's taking on moisture, it's building up dark and foreboding clouds and strong winds that are pushing the storm along. Then in the midst of all this growing storm, we hear God's voice and the rumbling of thunder, and it's still out over the sea, and yet we hear it. Verse 4 describes it as powerful thunder. Thunder so shocking and so fearsome that it can be still, even though it is out at sea, it can be felt on land. This is the making of the perfect storm. A storm whose power and direction are determined, empowered, and dispatched by Almighty God to fulfill His righteous purposes. It is a storm of such intensity as befitting the Lord who is full of majesty, as we are reminded in the text. The storm continues to build until it reaches landfall, where it strikes the mountains of Lebanon with such force that even the mighty cedar trees break and fall like twigs to the ground. They're blown away as so much chaff. We normally think of lightning as felling trees. Maybe you've seen it. I have. When lightning strikes trees, it's very impressive. But here it is the thunder. It's the voice of God, not the lightning, that brings these trees down. And these are the great cedars of Lebanon. They were a symbol of strength and beauty in Israel, so much so that Solomon used them to build the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Later in verse 9, we'll find that the destructive force of this thunder is so much that, that it will strip the trees off the mountains altogether. And here is where a lot of the symbolism we talked about before comes. Verse 6 speaks of Lebanon and Syrian. Now, Lebanon refers to Mount Lebanon, which is actually a mountain range whose peaks reach over 7,200 feet uh, in elevation, and it runs parallel to the Mediterranean and usually affords protection for that region, but not from this storm. Syrian is the Sidonian name for Mount Hermon that straddles the border of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel, and it means chief of uh, mountain of the chief and was supposed to be the home of the uh, pagan god Baal that, that just vexed Israel through their time when they entered Canaan. Constantly they went back to worship Baal. And we see that throughout uh, that period of his history. And I'm sure that David was not so subtly alluding to that fact. And alluding to the fact that the very mountains, if the very mountain quakes in the face of this storm, so certainly no puny man-made God is going to stand up to the might and the power of the one true creator of the universe. The tremendous force of the thunder shakes the very foundation of these otherwise mighty mountains so much that they are seen jumping around as young calves and oxen at play. And that's what David is alluding to here. If you've ever seen a, a colt or, or a small animal that is just kind of excited and out of control, kicking up their heels, running all over the place, that is the picture. Only this is a mountain. This is a mountain range caused by the power of the thunder, the voice of God. After that, the storm moves from the mountains south over Israel, the land of Israel, to the southern wilderness of Kadesh. And like the mountains, the voice of God flashes forth flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness as well to its very core. Verse 9 explain, it bears some explanation. So if you go there with me again in this wonderful symbolism, actually, in the ESV, the first part reads, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. 
But if you have the NIV here this morning, the New International Version, that reads, the, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. So why the difference? This is why studying the Psalms is so much fun. It really is really enlightening. And, and this is called a textual variant. Textual variant occurs when there is difficulty translating words that sound similar from one language to another. So although the NIV renders it, it seems to render it more consistent with the context. The ESV version is actually found in the older manuscripts and therefore is probably the one that is more correct. So to making the point is making the deer give birth simply means that the power of the thunder frightens the deer into giving birth prematurely. So as we put all this together and its meaning and what, what David is, is intending in this psalm and the Holy Spirit wants us to know, in other words, God is sovereign over all creation, not just the weather, not just the land, but over all living creatures. And then at the end of verse 9, the scene, which began in the heavenlies, moves to earth, where all the saints on earth, all the saints in his temple, echo the anthem of the angels, all in unison in one voice, as they ascribe to God the one word that encompasses his greatness. And in his temple, all cry glory. All cry glory. When we hear the voice of the Lord in these passages, I hope it takes you back to Genesis and the fact where we are, we are told repeatedly that God created the universe simply by speaking it into existence. In Hebrews 1.3, we're told that God who upholds the universe upholds it by the power of his word. And we hear here in the voice of the Lord the overpowering, his overpowering and controlling of all the natural forces on earth. And here is a question, and it is a metaphorical one to be sure. If the voice of God is that powerful, how much stronger is from Psalm 28 his righteous right hand? How powerful is our God? How sovereign is our God? So David has laid out for us that God is sovereign over the heavens. He is sovereign over the earth, and now we will see that God is sovereign over all humanity. As David continues with these final two verses, the storm has passed. God has spoken. Now all is calm, and all is quiet. But as we look back, as we ponder the voice of the Lord that we've just heard, we can't help but hear the unmistakable ring of judgment. As the psalmist considered the storm, he couldn't help be reminded that the Lord had brought to a previous generation a great flood that was born out of God's righteous judgment for sin. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Now in Hebrew, there are different words for flood. Here it is, mabul. Mabul occurs only 12 times in the Old Testament, always referring to the Genesis flood. In fact, the only time that Mabul is used outside of Genesis it is here in Psalm 29. It's unmistakable. No flood ever equaled the intensity or sheer violence of the Genesis flood, and for this reason, only one Hebrew word was ever used to name it. And there is no question who brought that flood. Genesis 6:17, God said, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters. The great flood did not occur by happenstance, but rather by the determined power and will of God for his righteous purpose. Going back, it says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. It's fitting. I believe that quiet, in the quiet aftermath of the storm, we find assurance that even as God is sovereign over the great Floods of long ago, so he is over all the floods since and will be over all the floods in the days to come. And that is evident in the text. The first time it says God sits enthroned over the flood is more properly, uh, should be rendered, uh, better translated, sat over the flood. This verse, uh, this use of the word sits is in the perfect tense that denotes a completed action. That flood came, it happened, and it is over. 
But in the second sense, uh, stanza, which reads similarly, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This one is in the imperfect tense. It is in, incomplete and therefore ongoing action. So what that tells us from the language is as the Lord sat on his throne as king over that great flood, so he sits on the throne now and to be ruling over all floods during all times as king forever. The implication, as we read this, we get past all the things I just said, but the implication is very strong, my friends, that there are more storms to come. And when they do, we can be assured that they too will be ruled over by the sovereign king of kings. Unfortunately for us, David doesn't leave this here with the storm and judgment. Verse 11, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And the verbs here, in the original Hebrew, make it clear that this is a prayer and it is saying the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Genesis 6 tells us about that great flood. How shortly after creation, as man multiplied on the earth, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of his heart was evil continually. And so God, for his righteous judgment, purposed to send this great flood to wipe out evil, to wipe out evil man from the face of the earth. You know the story. Against the backdrop of all of this evil, there was one righteous man, Noah. The Lord commanded Noah to build a great ark, a great boat, an ark. God himself provided the dimensions and the instructions to build the ark by which he would deliver Noah and his small family from the coming judgment and, do for, and in so doing save all mankind. And it is all God's doing. God personally shut Noah and his family into that ark and he protected them and preserved them for 40 days. And then at just the right time, God commanded the flood to cease, caused the waters to recede, and he placed Noah and his family safely on dry ground. And with the rainbow, promised never to destroy the earth again by a flood. I love the way the King James Version puts it. It's a wonderful song. It comes from Genesis 6-8, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That witness of Noah and God's promise of that rainbow come forward to us as a promise and assurance that God is there. He is there through the storm. And through it all, he grants us his blessing, his peace, and assurance of preservation, his assurance of salvation. And with that, pastor and author Warren Wiersbe summed up Psalm 29, these verses in particular with this. David rejoiced that the God who created the universe was also in control of the forces of nature and that there is nothing to fear. As some may be thinking, I've heard it, I think you have too, in general about the Psalms, but in particular Psalm 29, hey, this is just ancient song. Very poetic, sounds wonderful. Don't know what it means. A lot of symbols. And by, by, besides that, it's in the Old Testament. It has little to do with me. I'd love to read it, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with it. And my guess is some here, even today, may look at the Psalms in just that way. However, if we look at Psalm 29, all the Psalms, really, for what they are, they are holy, the songs and hymns, though they may be, they are Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. They are Holy Spirit-inspired Worship, and therefore, this is the word of God to his people. This is the word of God to you and me. And when we take it that way, we will find connection with the saints of old, our spiritual ancestors, if you will. We will find meaning and, in, and inspiration and instruction from the Holy Spirit. And with that, we will find application for our lives now in the 21st century. In short, we will find both beauty and relevance in every single psalm. So we want to understand that this idea of the voice of God is not just an Old Testament concept. Far from it. It's not just David's poetry to point to God's sovereignty. It continues well into the New Testament. 
in Psalm 29 and elsewhere in the Old Testament, the voice of God, we witnessed his sovereignty, his power, and his strength. And we will see that in the New Testament too. We hear the voice of God in Luke 3 at the baptism of Jesus Christ. When a voice came from heaven saying, audible voice from heaven, it came saying, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. That was the sovereign voice of God. And again in Luke 9, at the transfiguration of Christ, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Listen to Jesus, why? Because the voice of Jesus is the voice of God. That's made clear in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago. And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Friends, the implication of these last two verses in Psalm 29, as I said, is there are more storms to come. And when they do, if we are to find that peace and that blessing through the storm, we must listen and follow the voice of Christ. Similar, uh, the familiar words, Hebrews 12, 1 calls on each one of us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what that means is when we, we are to look upon Jesus with a focus that is so intent that nothing else comes into our view, not even peripheral vision, nothing distracts us, nothing determines us or deters us, putting it, puts all of our trusted Christ as our sovereign Lord and as our sovereign shepherd. This verse, and I've said it from pulpit before, always reminds me of a little song we sang in Sunday school. And it's so apt in this situation. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. My Lord knows the way through the storm. All I have to do is what? Oh, all I have to do is follow. We read in Psalm 29.3 that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. You remember in Mark 4, Jesus was in a boat, in a boat with his disciples when another great storm, a windstorm this time struck. Waves are breaking over the boat, threatening to capsize it. But Jesus was sleeping in the back. The disciples are overwhelmed by their fear and anxiety, and they, they woke him up and they cried, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Have you ever cried that before the Lord? Lord, don't you care? Lord, where are you? Jesus was there and he woke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And these disciples that have been following Jesus still said, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Friends, in the midst of the storm, we put all this together, we put scripture together, we know that the voice that brings the storm is the same voice that will calm the seas. Remember the promise of Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, we can go on like this all day, but it's Mother's Day, so we won't. But we do need to consider one more thing about the voice of Jesus Christ, or in Jesus Christ. It is from the voice of Jesus that we find forgiveness. Luke 24, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to the nations. And where we found judgment in the voice of the Lord, we also find salvation and assurance in the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And we hear the voice of Jesus Christ, his power over sin and death with the promise of resurrection. John 11, when Jesus had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face covered with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind, unbind him. And let him go. David may well have, when he wrote this psalm, had been watching the approach of an actual storm, very probably, I would think. 
We don't have a storm here this morning. But for you and I, you and me, the storm stands as a metaphor of any, any and all storms of life that we all experience in this life, this side of eternity. You may be experiencing the storm of ill health, maybe the storm of broken relationship, the storm of financial uncertainty, maybe the fear of the coming storm over our world and our nation, fear of all we've gone through with COVID and what might still be coming, the issues with Ukraine and Russia and might be coming, how that will affect us. You may be in the storm of spiritual doubt and confusion, struggling in your faith, struggling with finding answers. Whatever your storm is today, the question to you is whose voice are you listening to in that storm? Is it your own voice that you're listening to? Are you trying to talk your way out of the storm? Question, my friends. How much bailing would the disciples have had to do with their hands before that boat sunk, before they turned to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, save us? Are you listening to and following the voice and wisdom of man? Another question, how is that working for you so far? As we've seen today, it is only the voice of God, the sovereign voice of God, that will bring you lasting peace and comfort through whatever storm you experience in your life. However, here is a caveat. Look at the last verse of Psalm 29. Who receives the strength? Who receives the blessing? Who receives the peace? Who receives that assurance and the preservation? It is only his people. Asking a lot of questions. So here's the question to you today, and we'll close with this. If you know Christ today, if you are experienced any of these storms of life, we've only mentioned a couple. There are many, various intensities to be sure. But the call of Psalm 29 to you, 29 to you this morning is to meditate on this psalm knowing what you know now about the power and sovereignty of God. Other scriptures as well, there are many. God's sovereignty over the storm, over man's problems, over your problems, are everywhere in scripture. This psalm was written for you. You'll find God in the storm because it is his storm. In the storm of Psalm 46, what does God say? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted on the earth. Rest in knowing that he is sovereign over all the affairs of life, including yours. Even the trials and tribulations that we all as believers experience. Take heart from the words of Apostle Paul from in 2 Corinthians 4. And this has been so near and dear to my heart and lately in particular, but as we look at the ministries that Sue and I are involved in with, with those with special needs and the difficulties that come with that around the world, And Paul tells us, for this light and momentary affliction, it doesn't look that way, does it? It doesn't feel light and momentary. In the span of eternity, it will be. But what God will do as we finish this text is to call on us to look at these things spiritually. And when we do, we'll get a different perspective. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are temporary. They are a little of any value at all. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And what that means when we put this together, when you're going through the storms of life and you're trying to figure out why these things are happening to you, we need to turn back to this scripture and see that our affliction, whatever it is, is, is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, and that means that all our afflictions have eternal value. That should change your perspective on struggles and pain and issues of life. God uses them to grow us into the image of his Son, and therefore they have eternal value as nothing else does. That is the call to us this morning. If you know Jesus Christ, if you do not, 
If you do not know Jesus Christ here this morning, you should be, you must be afraid of the storm. There are no such promises for you. For you, the voice of the Lord is a warning. It is a warning that if if a storm is not already here, it is coming. And it is a storm of judgment. It is a judgment because of your sin. Sin in any form is active rebellion against that holy God, that holy and pure God we talked about, and sovereign God at that. But you are in need of a Savior, or that storm will in time and for all time sweep you away just as it did all those evil men and women at the time of the great flood who were swept away because of their sin. But here's the good news. The good news within God's sovereignty and all the other attributes, his love, his compassion, his justice, his righteousness, like the ark that saved Noah and his family, God has provided for you salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. If only you will heed his voice. When he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the call to you is to confess your sin. Confess your sin before God. Acknowledge him as almighty God. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God who is the only one that has the power to forgive you your sins and grant you that holiness we talked about in the beginning that one day will allow you to enter the presence of God forever, for all eternity. The very first words of uh, recorded words of Jesus' public ministry are in Matthew 4, 17. And they are very simply, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you hear his voice this morning, listen to him. Listen to him. Hebrews 4, 7. He, meaning God, appoints a certain day, called today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, if you want to know more, we always have an elder here and a, woman, a member of our women's care team here. And uh, they would be glad to talk to you about such things. So let's close with this, this last voice of the Lord. Because as we look, consider the storm, there is a storm that we all live through in, in the world, and we will decide of eternity. It's a, it is the storm of sin and death that pervades everything that we do. It is where we live in. It is why our heart longs for the purity of Christ. And the day is coming, my friends, ultimately, that the Lord will cause this storm to cease and all will be well. This is the way it's put in Revelation 21. And I heard the voice of the Lord from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That should thrill your heart. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The storm is over. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. And even as you have called on the heavenly angels to ascribe to you glory do your name, Lord, we pray that even as you've commanded us to do through this psalm and other places, that each and every one of us are ascribing, even right now, all the glory due your glorious name. And Lord, there is no question that there are those here, here who know about you, and they know about your sovereignty, but they don't know you. They are not partaking in it in, this, in, this, in that sense. Lord, you are a sovereign, righteous judge. And Lord, the storm will come for them, the storm of judgment. But it is our prayer, Lord, this morning that if for those that are experiencing it here or those listening to this at another time, Lord, you will just open their hearts and minds to your love, to your glory, to your grace and your mercy, and that you would turn their hearts to you in salvation, that they too will enjoy the holiness of God one day for all eternity. Lord, for those here in the storm, I'm sure there are many. Lord, grant us your peace 
not just the end of the storm. Teach us what you need us to know. Grow us in the way we need to grow. But preserve us through it, Lord, as you have promised to do, because you are a great God who loves us and is concerned for us. We look forward to that day, Lord, when what's called a beatific vision, we will come in your presence and we will see your purity and your holiness for, for all you are. And Lord, by your grace, we can share in that now. And Lord, we do pray for that. Thank you for your word. Be with Pastor Phil and his family today, Lord. We pray that he will be blessed. It will be a great day for them as well. And be with us as we go and celebrate our moms, Lord. May we honor them well as you expect us to in respect and honor for the mothers that you've given to us. So we give you all of these things to you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.